This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. In our study of the book of Nehemiah, we saw last week that upon the completion of the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah led the people in a great revival, a spiritual awakening. This revival was sparked and impulsed by the preaching of the Word of God. Today we come to chapter 9 of Nehemiah, which tells us of the further worship services which were held at that time. And the question that is confronting us today in the Word of God is this. What is the most spiritually significant activity that you perform on the earth? What is the most desired of God from you? What is the most crucial for your spiritual life? Think about that. Is it what you do in your home? Is it perhaps what you do in your society or in your workplace? Is it perhaps your own private time of prayer? The answer of God is this. Congregational worship. The worship of the church is the most significant activity performed by the child of God on earth. That makes sense. Makes reformed sense. Makes biblical sense. The great work of God in time is the gathering of a church in Jesus Christ, which shall eternally worship and praise Him. The most significant activity, therefore, on earth is when that church, though it be in principle, worships God. The body of Jesus Christ is God's church, and that's the work of Christ, to gather that church. And God, in a special way, delights in the gathering of His people to praise and to worship Him. What is most pleasing to God? Handel's Messiah. A beautiful choral piece. Mountain splendor? No. The Lord loves the praises of his people. As I said, the people of God under Nehemiah's leadership are now gathered in the worship of the living God in our text. Nehemiah chapter 9, 1 through 31. They have come under the word of God, as it has been sounded from a pulpit of wood. They have come humbled and burdened under their sin. They have desired to separate themselves from a world of sin. We read they separated themselves from all strangers. That is, they would not join the world in what they were doing. For we cannot worship if our heart is joined and our life is compromised with the sin worshipped in this world. And now we learn in chapter 9 what took place in their worship, namely that God's goodness was proclaimed to them, that in the light of that goodness they saw what they were as sinners and that finally they were, re- were renewed in the conviction of their need of the mercy of God. So that reading Nehemiah chapter 9, 1 through 31, we are taught as a whole in that chapter, that in worship, God's goodness must be shown in order to show 
our sin, so that we might be directed to his mercy and renewed to praise and serve him all our days. The sermon that day in Nehemiah's time centered on declaring the goodness of God. The people who came were deeply troubled over their sins. They had spent a week struggling. Further, they lived in poverty. They had stress on the job. They suffered under sins committed against them and opposition directed toward them, and temptations were many to be discouraged. And the message that they heard, what was it that they needed to hear? Well, we read in verse 5 of Nehemiah 9, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be his glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou art God alone. Now, we need to stop in our thoughts. Their minds might have been running with their problems and their needs and their difficulties and their hard situation, and the very first word was, Stop! God is God. He is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. You see, in true worship, we must first be confronted with God. We read, enter into his presence, come ye before him. When you go to church, do you think about everything and everyone and all types of things except God? Do you think only of yourself? Worship is coming into his presence. God is good in himself. We read again in verse 5, Blessed be thy glorious name. This was the first thing they heard in church, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So good, so glorious is God, so filled with things to praise, that he is above praise. That is, he is ever more glorious than we can think or say. You praise someone for pulling you out of a burning car or helping you study for an exam. You try to express your thanks, and the person says, Enough, enough. You flatter me. You go beyond. But not so in praising God. The reality of how good and glorious God is, is exalted above praise. You may take the song of Miriam and Aaron at the Red Sea. You may add in David's leaping with joy when he takes the ark to Jerusalem. And then you may combine the glorious chorus of heaven right now before the throne of God, hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, you may take it all together, and the reality of how glorious God is, is above it, it's above all that. You would have to say, after listening to heaven's worship, it's been understated, the glory of God is understated, the one who you worship in church is God. Thou art God alone. In the Belgic Confession, one of the Reformed Biblical Creeds of the Church, we confess in Article 1 that we believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is only one simple spiritual being called God, and that He is eternal, incomprehensible, and glorious. Are you aware of that? When you worship, worship can be a dangerous place for you and me. Imagine being in the presence of that person who pulled you out of the burning car and acting slovenly, indifferent, apathetic, and thinking only about yourself and 
your schedule and where you need to be and thinking of tomorrow and your plans. Imagine doing that to a human being. God is in the worship of his church. God is greatly to be praised. He is to be had in reverence among all the assembly of the saints. He is good. He is not only good in his self, but he is good in his works. We read in verse 6, Thou hast made heaven and the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all things therein, the seas and all things that they are therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worship thee. Now the point this morning is not for me to expound on the beautiful truths of creation and providence, except for me to add that if you deny those truths of creation in six 24-hour days and of providence that God upholds all things by his hand, then you cannot worship God in his works. But the point is not to go into that right now, but the remembrance of these things are utterly necessary for proper worship, to put us in awe, to place us before God as he is. What are the first words of a minister when he starts the service? Well, historically, in the Dutch Reformed churches, it is this. It's taken from Psalm 124, and it's intentional. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, our help standeth in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The contemplation of God's mighty work in creation and his ongoing providence places us in the proper state of awe before God. Psalm 100, Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. You and I in worship are in the presence of him who hath made and holds us right now in his hand, and in Christ has revealed to us his eternal love. Bow down in worship. The entire length of the sermon that day dealt with the goodness of God as it is shown toward his church and people. Now we can only glance a little bit at what is said, and I cannot bring out the details, but it's the cumulative weight of all that God did, which is the point of the passage. Read it for yourself today, Nehemiah chapter 9. We could look at each incident that is mentioned of what Jehovah has done and say, oh, how good he is. But the effect is intended to look at their combined testimony. When you add them all up, then you see who he is and what he did. How good God is to his people. How indisputably and immeasurably good. We are not very good, you know, at spiritual arithmetic in adding things up. We can count dollars into the millions. But we can't count past five or ten in listing what God has done. But the sermon there gave a list. It gave a list of some of the good works of God. Look at it just briefly. There was, first of all, God's goodness in the call of Abraham out of an eternal election to inherit the land of Canaan and establish a covenant with him. It was the deliverance of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt, because he heard their cry, dividing the Red Sea and throwing the Egyptians down as a stone in the water. It was the leading of Israel forty years through the dry wilderness by the pillar of fire and cloud. 
There was the giving of his, to Israel the law at Sinai to teach them how to show love and gratitude and bringing them to rest. There was manna and water from a rock, repeated, repeated. There were forty years of sustaining them in the wilderness, and their clothes did not wear out. There was the giving of them of the land on the east side of the Jordan, and then the multiplying of them. There was the further giving them of the entire land of Canaan, casting down the walls of their enemies, defeating their giants, and giving them the wealth of the land. Then followed judges and saviors to help them, and prophets to bring them the word of God. Now let me put that all in the language of fulfillment. Here is... The skimming of the top, a superficial account of God's goodness to you, his child. He elected you eternally and called you out of the world of sin to which you belonged and deserved its judgments. He established unconditionally a covenant with you and he said, I will be your friend. I will delight in you. I will show you glorious things. He ransomed you from the bondage and guilt of sin by making a sea of blood in his own son. He has led you 10, 20, 35, 41, 49, 70 years. There has never been one day or one night when he took his eye from you. He gave you angels food and water that quenches thirst, the Lord Jesus Christ, and faith in him which does not wear out. He laid up for you Canaan, and you will go over the Jordan of death to be with him. He cast down your giants and your troubles and all that oppressed you, and he leads you with spiritual care. He gives you the church, he gives you his word, he gives you his faithfulness. Now, as you are met in the place of worship on the Lord's day, this is the God in whose presence you stand. You have come through a week, all right, you have come through a week of many trials and many troubles, but now you stand in the church of God. What is the first word that you must hear? Behold your God. Behold how good. How glorious, how worthy of praise, how perfect in trust, how glorious. And seeing the truth of the goodness of God, the people were led to see the truth about themselves. The sermon on the goodness of God that day produced an effect. As the light of heaven shone down around them and the glory of the Lord filtered upon mortal men and women, as they stood in the light of God, they saw themselves. They saw things they would never have seen in the darkness of their pride. So to us, we journey to God's house on this spiritual day. There is darkness all around us and there is darkness within. There are secret sins and self-delusions within us, and the word of God is opened. The Holy Spirit brings the countenance of God, glorious and good, shining before our spiritual eyes, and I look at myself, and I learn myself. The result of true worship is the right understanding of yourself. As a sinner, in need of covering. Have you ever worshipped God? I'm not asking if you've ever gone to church and then come home and you could tell me what everybody is wearing and who has a gripe with who. I'm asking you, have you ever worshipped God? In the worship, have you ever seen 
yourself. Ask the prophet Isaiah, ask the publican of whom Jesus spoke. Talk with them as they exit the worship service. Ask them, Isaiah, publican, how was, the, how was church today? We hear that you had a vision of the throne of God, God in his perfection and glory. Tell us about it. What was the result? How do you feel? And Isaiah responds, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And you turn to the publican, and he's smiting his breast, and he's saying, God, be merciful to me. For when they worshipped, they stood before God in his goodness and glory. And that goodness and glory shone down upon them, not just their actions. But in the light of his goodness, they went behind the action to see the heart and exposed the working of their hearts to them which they would not have known. That's worship. Worship is to stand before God. Children, the Word of God, because it proclaims the glory of the Lord, is like an x-ray. You can't see what's inside of me. You can't see my bones, and that I have an artificial hip, and maybe a lump of cancer. But before an x-ray, the inside is shown. Now, God's glory is the x-ray. And it will show you the truth about yourself. In the light of God's goodness, we read that they saw the inexcusable sins that Israel had committed in the wilderness. They, had seen, they confessed further the repeated provocations that Israel had made even after they had been put in possession of the land of Canaan. They confessed that even though Israel had stood before the good things of God, that they had turned to their own lusts and had not been faithful stewards, that they had sinned against knowledge, that they had become insensitive, hardened, detached, remote, to the word of God, which called them to repentance. They put in their time, so to speak, on Sunday, but they left God and left his word in the church. What did they see about themselves? They saw that they were proud, arrogant, hard-hearted, rebellious, idolatrous sinners. They were resentful of the word of God and those who brought it to them. They were insensitive toward the need of repentance. They tried to use God for their own self-serving motives. Knowing the word of God, they politely bowed to it in the presence of others, but they went out and they lived according to their own dictates. What do you see about your life? Not somebody else, but about your life in the light of the breathtaking goodness of God. Their confession was sincere. They saw their sin. That is the crucial element of worship. True worship is the fellowship of those who have been humbled before God's infinite goodness to them in Jesus Christ. It's more. It is, of course, thanks. It is praise. It is joy. It is rejoicing in God for his goodness to me as a sinner. Goodness to me in Christ. But you see, all of the activities of worship, the joy and the praise, are hollow clanging on a drum. Have you ever heard someone hit a 
hollow oil, bell, oil barrel. It's hollow clanging if there's not a heart humbled in the knowledge of themselves as a sinner before God. You can make a lot of noise. You can clang. And there's a lot of empty chatter. But when you are filled with God and with humility before yourself as a sinner, there will be deep, resonant, soothing praise of God. We worship God through the Psalms. We sing those Psalms and we use those Psalms in our prayers because they proceed from an awareness of who God is and who I am before Him. That worship service that day brought a great blessing. Oh, a wonderful blessing. It brought the wonder shining upon their hearts of God's mercy. We can't miss that as we read through the chapter. Throughout the chapter, we read of God's mercy. We read of the word but and yet. Yet, we read in verse 19, Thou in thy manifold mercy forsakest them not. Verse 30, Yet, Many years thou didst forbear with them. Verse 31, Nevertheless, for thy great goodness sake and mercy. It's like the composition of good music. When the composer returns to the comforting, victorious theme of his music, so is worship. It always returns to this, the brilliant aspect of God's mercy. God's mercy, his compassion on those who are miserable and ugly, and his commitment to do them good. Why didn't God forsake Israel? Why didn't God forsake us? There certainly was a just cause for his severing the tie. Why did not the holy God consume them? As he did the heathen, he bore and he forbore. He restored them. He chastened them severely only to bring them constantly back to him. These people, why did not God leave them? Why? For thy great mercy's sake. You see, when you stand before God and see yourself as a sinner and hear the testimony of the cross of Jesus Christ, then you are awed at the mercy of God. Because he has willed in himself from all eternity to be gracious to his church and to save his church in the blood of his own dear Son washing us from our sins and creating in us a new obedience, a new heart and a right spirit within us that we might live before Him and love Him. Why? For He is good and His mercies are everlasting. Are you ready to worship God? Are you ready to be lost in wonder and in praise for His mercy? Do you see His mercy? Let me use an example. Imagine with me a great door, like a garage door, and behind that great door is a vast land filled with beauty, exquisite beauty. A land that is brilliant and breathtaking and wondrous. And there's only a little crack at the bottom of the door. And you stand next to someone who has seen that land and told you all about that land and says to you, can you see that land? And you say, no. He says to you, well, stoop down a little bit. Can you see it now? There's a little crack there on the bottom. Can you see that? And you say, no. He says, well, get on your hands and knees. Can you see it now? You say, no. He says, put your face to the ground. Press your eye to the gravel. 
Can you see now? And you say, yes. Oh, I see it dimly, but oh, oh, what a land, what a beauty. Only when in the light of God's goodness you are humbled in the dust can you catch a glimpse of His mercy. And one glimpse is breathtaking. God has to do that. You can bow your head on a prayer rug with your face to the ground and be pressed to the ground and see nothing. Still proud, still working your way, you think, to your God. No, God must humble the heart. He must address the pride. But when He humbles, it is in order that He might give a vision, a glimpse, of His mercy in the face of Jesus Christ, His Son, that He has given His Son in order that we might bask one day in the light of His glory. He gives us to see His mercy by showing us our sinful selves. And then we leave worship. Shall I give you a riddle? The true worshiper leaves church empty and yet full. Empty of self and filled with wonder at God's mercy. Let's pray. Eternal and glorious God of heaven and earth, we praise and thank Thee for Thy infinite mercy in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed Churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org